Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, broadband talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Suttles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us. Gigabit Nation's here to provide useful information and insights to help communities, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. Now, when you bring up the topic of broadband to communities, obviously one of the first questions is going to be uh, how are we going to be able to fund the network? Uh, there are various options, but one that seems to be uh, gaining in popularity as far as you know what the media is covering is the subject of cooperatives. And co-ops are how rural communities brought telephone service and electricity to their communities when the private sector couldn't be bothered. And now, uh, in this new millennia, thanks to, uh, in particular to the broadband stimulus, communities are taking a closer look at this strategy and there were a number of co-ops that received broadband uh, stimulus funding, which just further fuels the fire. But also, nothing works quite as well as success when introducing these new ideas. And today, or I guess reintroducing an old idea as new again, uh, we have one of the pioneers in broadband co-ops, Wally Bowen. And Wally is the founder and executive director of the Mountain Area Information Network, or Maine, and they have been uh, quite successful for a number of years. So, Wally, welcome to the show. Uh, Craig, it is a delight to be with you, and I appreciate uh, the invitation. Sure, sure, not a problem. I mean, we've talked a number of times over the years, so it's just only logical uh, to uh, you know come in and talk about this. So. When we talk about broadband and we talk about co-ops, what exactly is a co-op in that context, and how how does it work? Well, yeah, let me clarify. Um, first of all, Mountain Area Information Network, we are a nonprofit. Uh, we're community-based. Our board of directors, which is our governing body, all come from um, the area of Asheville and the surrounding mountain region, North Carolina, but we are not a cooperative in the strictest sense that the network uh, is owned by the uh, members or the users. Um, and they're all different flavors of cooperatives, but what, what we do, the, the most fundamental uh, commonality is that we are non-commercial, we are non-profit, and we are community-based. And that's typically the case for a traditional non uh, cooperative where the um, uh, individual subscribers, typically, say, a rural electric cooperative, uh, are members of the uh, member owners uh, of the cooperative. So, so, um, but people, you know, this is one of these terms that uh, can be used in any number of contexts. But the bottom line, whether it's cooperative or it's uh, uh, community-based community uh, organization like we are. Uh, we are community-owned, community-governed, grounded in the community, um, and we're not going to be sold off to some absentee owner. Mm -hmm. So it's basically a variation on the theme of community ownership is really the core, and ownership in a, in a non-profit or not-for-profit entity being the the body, as it were, that's making this whole thing happen. Right, and and of course, you know, most familiar to folks will be the rural electric cooperatives, which were really um, got off the ground in the 1930s with the passage of the 1936 Rural Electrification Act. And uh, what's interesting is, uh, and very relevant to where we are today, is that if you go back and read the Rural Electrification Act. Um, this was a law that provided federal loans, federal subsidies to rural areas to build and operate their own electric networks. And um, but virtually any entity was eligible. It could be a for-profit. It could be an individual 
could be uh, nonprofit, cooperative, municipality. Uh, they basically threw everything but the kitchen sink in there to um, to obviously cover all the you know possibilities that that uh, might pertain to a particular rural area. But what's interesting is that the vast majority, more uh, more than eighty percent, I think, of the uh, of the rural networks that were built to provide electricity uh, uh, adopted the nonprofit cooperative model. Okay, so they felt that that was um, now. Are there um, advantages to using that structure, that cooperative uh, structure. Well, the, the advantages are are are, are many, and um, um, I, and it's and I again, it's I use the term nonprofit uh, to cover cooperatives and the the kind of traditional nonprofit network that that Mountain Area Information Network is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the advantages are that um, one, you keep the you keep the dollars local. Um, you uh, create local jobs. Um, you know, you, you don't uh, outsource. Um, but what I find most, and of course, there's local. You know, the local control, the local accountability, the uh, responsiveness that we that uh, goes hand in glove with uh, community-owned. Uh, network, um, you're not going to be shunted off to a, a call center in Boca Raton or or Indonesia or somewhere. So, um, but one the most intriguing uh, advantage that, that I I like to talk about that we don't get to talk about, particularly in the United States, is the social capital advantage. And by that I mean um, the kind of relationships that. Uh, we develop uh, through the network and among our neighbors and uh, the kind of expertise that we have in the community, the IT expertise. And um, and we now know uh, that social capital is a really uh, um, uh, under-appreciated under, uh, um, uh, value and resource for economic and community development. Um, for example, Bill Gates grew up in Seattle, not far from the University of Washington, um, and he had access because of some of the social capital resources uh, in the community and neighborhood where he grew up. Happened to be, you know, some of the parents had the ability to put um, a mainframe terminal tied to the University of Washington in the basement of his uh, junior high school. Mm-hmm. And so that's where he got his start. That's a great had 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 Bill Gates grown up an hour in even you know in any direction further away from you know that neighborhood, he wouldn't have been Bill Gates. And I was reading earlier today, someone said that uh, uh, Steve Jobs, uh, if um, if he hadn't been put up for adoption, he might have ended up in uh, a remote rural area rather than you know where he grew up. And he wouldn't have been the Steve Jobs, the innovator that we know today. So, but the point is that by having the community network assets grounded in the community, with the dollars going, you know, being reinvested in the network, with the IT staff and expertise there, um, it's an advantage to the larger community. Uh, whenever an innovator wants to learn about uh, some technicality or or some new has some new idea, you know, he or she wants to um, um, uh, throw out. There's a community of people there who can respond, and that's the that social capital advantage that uh, I think is really underappreciated, and that we need to be including in the economic development calculus when we talk about uh, providing broadband, particularly in underserved areas. Now, what is social capital? Or you know, uh, summarize what would um, it be? Well, you know, we know what financial capital is. It's, it's uh, you know, the monetary resources that uh, can allow us to uh, build and operate a network, that, that kind of mm-hmm. uh, financial capital. Social capital, though, is that human dimension that um, can exist uh, and, and does exist where, um, in this case, you know, IT experts live and work, Silicon Valley, Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, 
uh, Route 29 outside of Boston, those areas. Uh, and so and with social capital, you may be at your kid's soccer game and you bump up, you run into somebody and say, hey, you know, I've got this idea. I've got this problem with, uh, with the network. I've got this problem with my computer. I've got this idea for this new device. What do you think about this? And you get that interaction that happens um, outside the workplace, really. That, that's social capital. It's, um, it's a resource that um, exists in some communities and in, some, and, in uh, more and more rural communities. It's been, um, it's been uh, removed whenever a network owner consolidates their IT personnel uh, in uh, Atlanta or Charlotte or, or Kansas City or Houston, rather than having uh, those IT experts living and working in the community. Social capital is, is, is an IT expert going to their kids' classroom and giving a talk about uh, you know, jobs in the uh, computer science field um, or the future of mobile wireless. Uh, you know, where you know, kids get excited and have uh, uh, just like Steve Jobs got excited, you know, at some point. Bill Gates as well. That's what that's social capital. It's the human dimension of uh, economic and community development. Interesting. I don't think uh, you're right. I don't think we talk enough about that, and that's a very big factor. I know that uh, in interviewing people from other communities, uh, the smaller communities will talk about the advantage of being able to run into the head of customer service for the, the community network operator who's right there and the fact that the management of the organization, whether it's the utility or a nonprofit, is is part of the community, which has a much greater, you know, they as individuals have a much greater uh, stock in the success because the success is personal to them in that community. Right. I, we, I, there's a couple of quick little stories I can tell uh, to illustrate um, how social capital works, uh, drawing on our own experience. Um, about um hour and a half north of Asheville, here in the mountains of North Carolina, is uh, Mitchell County. 1998, they got hit with terrible floods up there, and some FEMA money, Federal Emergency Management Agency money, came in to help them uh, develop some emergency communications and uh, we've been providing dial-up Internet access in Mitchell County <clears throat> since 1996 and um, high-speed wireless uh, broadband since 2003. And, and so um, after Katrina, the uh, Homeland Security, Department of Homeland Security developed a, um, a, um, a ham radio-enabled laptop for emergency communications. You remember... When Katrina hit, all our cell phone, all our landline communications were down for days, and it was the Wi-Fi and the ham radio operators, local, that uh, established the first emergency communications after uh, the hurricane hit. So our um, one of our former board members up in Mitchell County is a ham radio operator, and his local chapter got a hold of some of these ham radio enabled laptops and um to test them and and to start uh you know having them there for you know any kind of future disaster and um they could have used it with a uh a dish in i think utah or somewhere where the ham radio signal would be picked up and then uh delivered to the internet uh and so but they, knowing that Mountain Area Information Network existed right there in Mitchell County, they, Thursday morning in May, about three years ago, they picked up a call, picked up the phone and called us and said, "Hey, we'd like to get a connection to your um, wireless broadband transmitter up on the, the mountaintop uh, uh, in, in, in Mitchell County," and you know, to test this and to and to use it if it works. And we said, sure, that afternoon, you know, they had a secure connection. It happened that fast. Later on, I was thinking about it, and I called Bob back, Bob Rogers back up, and I said, Bob, if Mountain Area Information Network didn't exist, what, what would you have done to, you know, to, to test this laptop? He said, well, I could have gone up to the mountaintop and looked on the tower there and, 
find out who the tower owner was, try to find out who the other operators were on the tower and you know, contacted their corporate offices. And after probably six weeks or six months, I would have been told no or yes for $1,000 a month. But he didn't have to go through that corporate bureaucracy. He just picked up the phone and called us. And we were, you know, very willing to, to help, you know, this community group. Uh, test this emergency communications device. That's social capital at work, the ability to pick up the phone because you know somebody. You have those human connections. Uh, similarly, just about 30 minutes north of Asheville in this very remote, beautiful little town called Marshall, North Carolina, in Madison County, it's it's a little town that's, that's um, uh, tucked between uh, the French Broad River and a mountain, a steep ridge. And in the middle of the river is an island, and the old high school um, was is, is has sat on that island for generations, but it's been abandoned for you know several decades. And a local entrepreneur wanted to uh, buy it, renovate it, and turn it into artist studios. And it's a gorgeous setting, and it's only 30 minutes from Asheville. And uh, he had a great business model, uh, except for the fact that when he called the phone company. He couldn't get um, he couldn't get broadband to the island. When he called the cable company, same thing. He couldn't get a straight answer about whether he could get broadband. He had to have broadband to this facility. So he eventually found us, and um, for about three thousand dollars, we pulled a fiber drop from our rural electric co-op down to downtown Marshall, and then did a wireless bridge wireless broadband uh, link across the river to the high school. And we also said, you know, when you're renovating the building, make sure you put conduit and, and Cat5 or Ethernet cabling throughout the building, and you'll be set, set for the future. And he didn't have any idea what Cat5 or conduit was. He's an artist and, and a developer. But we were able to advise him in a way that uh, someone at the uh, charter or uh, Verizon call center would never be able to advise him. And so he went forward with his renovation. We provided the Internet access, and it's been a huge success because these folks these folks, uh, you know, are con connected to the world but can still do their art here in this gorgeous setting. Mm -hmm. So those are just two examples of how social capital works with a community-owned network. So let's talk about... Um the mechanics of this process. So if I am a typical community, small, maybe rural, maybe suburban, what have you, um, what's the first step toward um, going down the nonprofit or cooperative uh, path? Well, um, what we did, um, uh, we called a meeting at the public library and said, hey, we're thinking about um, – doing a community network. This, Of course, this was in dial-up days, and, and we'd heard about Cleveland Freenet, and uh, how can we take this Internet <clears throat> technology and make it really uh, a powerful implementation at the community level? It's great to connect locally, uh, globally, but how can we connect locally? So we just, you know, put out a press release and, and had a, put up notices and had a meeting at the library to see who showed up. We also contacted um, local computer uh, groups, the Mac user group, the PC user group. Um, we have a you know a, a small university campus at the University of North Carolina at Asheville. Um, yeah, um, we have IT folks at the you know community college and at the hospitals. Turned out there was a Linux users group, and we contacted them. So I think the first step is to start to look around and and find out where your social capital is, find out where your expertise is, particularly in the IT field. Um, we also had one of our founding board members was the uh, executive director, longtime executive director of the uh, uh, local, our, our regional council of government, uh, our COG, uh, and this is the coalition of all the local governments which um, they assist in, 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 in grants and economic and community development initiatives. Um, someone who was very well connected and who understood the power of the, you know, the potential of the internet. So these are the various players you need to to get to the table 
who one have expertise and or and or uh, can appreciate that larger economic and community development vision and help you um, start moving the ball forward. So, um, uh, and bringing in an outside speaker who who's done this or um, has had some success. In our case, uh, it was um, a Charlotte Observer editor by the name of Steve Snow who unfortunately um, is deceased, no longer with us, but Steve had developed uh, Charlotte's Web, one of the first community networks in the United States uh, back in 1994-95. Uh, and so we brought Steve over, uh, again, at the public library, had another meeting, and we gradually built a core group of really dedicated people um, who saw that, you know, hey, we could do this. We have the expertise. And that was the uh, beginnings of the Mountain Area Information Network. Mm -hmm. Now, to structure the <clears throat> the nonprofit, could I, I should th I should point out um, even in '05, let's see '05, yeah, was, I, um, Philadelphia created a nonprofit to run at the time what they thought was going to be the broadband network. I mean, back then it was Muni Wi-Fi and it hadn't didn't have much structure and and so forth, but they basically said our best way forward was to create a nonprofit. So there was a whole ritual that went with that. What's the, um, uh, for lack of a better, the, the nonprofit dance? I mean, it, okay, we, you, you've got the people, you've identified resources, you've identified the need, you understand that broadband is the way to get from here to there, but are there steps for, I mean, do you incorporate? Is it a simple matter of just filing papers? What's the mechanics of getting that thing you know, as a formal structure or organization off the ground? Yeah, it's uh, you file um, incorporation papers, very simple uh, form with a <clears throat> with the uh, Secretary of State for your, your state. Um, um, you then uh, file with the IRS. And again, it's, it's a fairly simple process. You know, usually there's an attorney uh, in town who's willing to donate his or her time, who knows how to uh, do the incorporation process. In our case, it was a, um, um, a young woman uh, who was fresh out of law school who, who helped. Um, and but a lot of people have done this, um, even in small smaller communities. Um, you you know you get you know you form a board of directors. Um, one of the things that we found out is that, um, you know, here we had formed the nonprofit, we had filed the incorporation papers, we had our board of directors, we started having meetings, we had minutes, we were doing everything you know, we were supposed to be doing. But when we had a chance to go for a, a, a big federal grant, we realized that, hey, you know, we never handled a big grant, we never handled a small grant. Uh, and that's really, um, um, you know, a, a, a grantor is probably going to be a little reluctant to drop serious bucks on a, uh, a brand new organization. And we discovered the um, something called fiscal agency. We were able to go again to our council of government, Land of Sky Regional Council. They do routinely. They routinely act as a fiscal agent for. Local nonprofits, uh, local governments, uh, particularly with federal grants, and they have a lot of expertise. And the federal agencies are very comfortable channeling the money through uh, a, a local cog, council of government. Every every community in this country is part of a council of government region, and um, and and so that is. Um, a very com convenient uh, agency or platform on which to start to build your credibility, uh, and um, and you know they had the full-time accountant and financial management folks, and they took only a very small percentage of the grant uh, as their administrative fee. It worked out beautifully. Mm -hmm. So it was a uh, fairly it sounds like it was a fairly straightforward process. Uh, where you need help, I gather. Well, it would seem like there's two places you need help. One is um, in, in forming the process for how you're going to go after money and making sure that that's all done and it's legit and so forth and so on. 
and then help running the actual network that is the fruit of all this. Is that a good summation? Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, what we found is that when we got um, – this was an $800,000 grant that we got uh, in 1995, um, just before the government shut down. <laughs> Um, and so every, in the fall of 95, and so we we were kind of delayed getting out of the gate. Um, but, we, of course, we had done a lot of legwork, and, we, of course, we had to identify the problem that we were wanting to solve. And, and what we, we – frankly, we had some folks that came to those initial meetings and they were part of our board of directors that would have been comfortable having the Mountain Area Information Network be an Asheville community network. But – there were others of us who insisted that, hey, if this Internet technology is as good as we think it is, we've got all these surrounding counties. Uh, you know, the mountains of North Carolina is an area roughly the size of Vermont. You know, you know, we all share the same fate. We're all three to four hours away from our, our state capital in Raleigh, or actually more than four hours for the far western counties. We're all pretty far removed from the center of finance in Charlotte. Uh, you know, it's a pretty isolated region. We're all in the same boat. Let's build a community network that really encompasses the entire region. So we started uh, making connections and found out that many of these rural counties around Asheville in 1995-96 had to call long distance to get on the Internet. So if you if you knew about the Internet and you had a CompuServe or an AOL or a prodigy account, it was a long-distance phone call to, to get on the Internet. Um, we also found out that there was no public access to the Internet in any of our public libraries. So our grant uh, solved that problem, and we ended up uh, putting servers in each of the counties to provide uh, uh, dial-up with a local phone call. But what happened is that when we got the grant, we had so many firms and engineers and uh, experts knocking on our door, knocking on our door uh, with free lunch. Uh, to um, I never, I didn't know what a packet switch network was until a Bell South uh, engineer did a chalk talk for us, uh, and they provided lunch, and it was great. You know, we had all this free expertise coming in because they wanted a piece of the action. So. Um, uh, yeah, it, and, and so eventually we had this distributed network where uh, we were bringing traffic from these rural remote counties back to the Bell South switch in Asheville and from there to the Internet. And um, we woke up when we were uh, ISP. So how was it that they didn't view you as a threat? Because that seems to be the norm a lot of times when... <laughs> Well, remember, this was uh, 1996. You know, Not Bill true. Gates, it was early Bill, on. Bill Gates didn't even had had just later that year acknowledged the, that the internet was going to be important. <laughs> uh, so you know, they they were not uh, they didn't internet access wasn't uh, something that Bell South was really involved with at that time. They were uh, simply wanting to get a you know piece of course. You know, we had to pay $2,500 a month for a T1 line. You know, it's a megabit and a half uh, per se connection. So that's a, you know, we learned a lot. Of, you know, we found out, you know, it was about a third that in Charlotte. So we learned right out of the gate about the uh, importance of having your own um, high-speed infrastructure in place. And, and so that's when we started advocating for building our own middle mile fiber backbone uh, infrastructure. And, and today we have a, um, a separate nonprofit, uh, actually several uh, nonprofits that um, provide this middle, middle mile fiber backbone throughout our mountain region. So how does the organization, how does Maine continue to generate uh, money? Because you initially started based on a grant, um, but over these years, I mean, has it been the, the revenues from subscribers has sustained it? Have you gotten additional grants? I mean, what's what's behind the money, we, the, the financial yeah. side? Yeah, um, I would um, – I haven't really done the calculation, but my guesstimate would be that um, roughly 60 to 70% of our 
operating revenue since 1996 has been from subscriber fees. We also host websites. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a that's a revenue center for us. Um, by 1999 or so, we were generating almost a million dollars a year, and uh, just from subscriber revenue from our dial-up and web hosting services. Um, of course, that began falling off pretty dramatically with the advent of broadband, mm-hmm. and um, and and we've seen that. Um, you know, decline happening, you know, to this day. And we we still have about 700 dial-up subscribers throughout the region. Uh, so it's, you know, it's still a big problem for folks uh, in the rural areas. Um, but um, but in 2003, we, we got a grant through the North Carolina Rural Internet Access Authority to uh, launch a 900 megahertz wireless network uh, in three rural counties, Madison, Mitchell, and Yancey, uh, north of Asheville. Um, we were also instrumental in getting some uh, some of this money to the Rural Electric Cooperative, who serves those three counties. And um, they had not thought about becoming a, a middle-mile broadband provider, but they were starting to to look at fiber as a um, low-control um, you know, network management um, uh, t- a platform. And, you know, we went to them and said, hey, you know, we can help you get more fiber out there. And, by the way, you can devote some strands to uh, getting, you know, getting us to the Internet. And so um, the Rural Electric Cooperative uh, became our middle-mile broadband provider. And, and instead of paying... $2,500 a month for a T1 line. Our our uh, costs for um, uh, have has uh, have, have dropped to uh, below $100 per megabit uh, mm-hmm. today. So it's interesting. One earlier this morning, uh, I had a conversation with a uh, reporter from USA Today, and we got into this discussion part of the discussion about the private sector because, uh, as you know, in North Carolina, you know the the, the private sector. It can be uh, uh, detrimental to communities getting networks going. On the flip side, um, you know, my my point to him was uh, the smaller service providers, the smaller cable companies, and so forth, aren't working from the same mindset. And so, subsequently, communities can develop strategies by partnering with that segment of the private sector, and maybe come up with a lot better results. It sounds like what you 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 are sort of the embodiment of that. Is that your your success at that crucial point in the mid you know first part of the the century or you know the century was your relationships with local providers? I mean, obviously Bell South had an important role in, the, in their contribution, but it sounds like um, you were really helped out by the local private sector. Well, first of all, we are the private sector. We are a private nonprofit and. Um, I get a little <laughs> frustrated when, um, you know, the the phone companies, uh, you know, the AT&T's, Bell South, they've been taking subsidies, you know, taxpayer subsidies, state and federal subsidies for years, uh, and nobody says a word. But when a nonprofit gets a subsidy, um, all of a sudden we're competing unfairly. Uh, we are not a public entity. We are a private nonprofit. We we are part of the private competitive marketplace. We are a private sector entity. So we are just as and should be just as eligible for these subsidies as as Bell South or AT and T or or anyone else. So, um, but but yeah, Bell South. Um, um, you know, it's interesting talking about social capital. At that time, they had um, a very experienced and knowledgeable salesperson who was a woman who um, uh, was very, very helpful to us. And their engineer they brought in was from Charlotte. And now um, they probably still have some engineering talent in Charlotte, but their sales force, they don't have anyone. They're gone. So all that... IT expertise that Bell South, now AT&T, once had in Asheville, those folks are all congregated down in Atlanta or Charlotte or Greenville, South Carolina, and they only 
come back to the region, you know, to troubleshoot. Same with the cable company. But um, so anyway, we're part of the private sector, and um, yeah, just like any other private sector business, we we will uh, you know have uh, business relationships with uh, other private sector entities. And uh, uh, but you know, we knew that um, in order to control our own destiny and to keep our rates low and to keep dollars in the local economy, it was better to build and operate our own network at the middle mile level, at the fiber level. And right. uh, that, that, was a, that was a chapter in our history that came along uh, in the roughly 1999 to 2002 uh, era. Um, um, so anyway, I, I don't know if I answered your question, Craig, but that, uh, I, I did want to make that distinction that we are a private sector entity. Right, and I think I may not, I may not have stated it Ideally, but my I, the point I was getting to is that your organization represents the private sector, but it's the local private sector, and and that was right. really my 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 big point with the with the gentleman from from USA Today was that yes, you, you you've got to break the private sector down when you get into this discussion about you know well the private sector fights municipal networks. Well, yes, it is true that a segment does, but then there's also true that you have now these days, you know, a variety of public-private partnerships. You know, in some cases, it's the public building the infrastructure and private sector companies providing the uh, the service across that infrastructure. In other cases, in the co-op and the nonprofit or not-for-profit uh, setup, it is. You know, local smaller providers are you know the key part of the picture there. So it's you know it's like it's like we need to to break off this discussion about you know community versus private sector to where no there is a section of the private sector that's a problem, and then there is a large part of the private sector that is the eventual solution, and the, the differentiator being who's local and who's not. Right. Right. Yeah, let's talk about football. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, this is really, really relevant because uh, I've been the Green Bay Packers. Um, you know, Green Bay Packers uh, is supported by a community of 104,000 residents. And they are the dominant franchise in the National Football League and have been for uh, quite a long time. They've won more NFL uh, Super Bowl championships than any other franchise. And they are the only nonprofit um, franchise in the National Football League. In fact, they're the only community that will ever, uh, unless their NFL changes their bylaws. But the reason I bring up the, the Green Bay Packers is that they're a private nonprofit, but they have strong roots and strong support from the community. And um, in 1923, they adopted the nonprofit um, uh, model. And um, over the years, they've sold stock. Um, no one can buy more than 200 shares of the Green Bay Packers stock. They don't want to have some imbalance that could someday risk the franchise being, you know, sold off uh, to an absentee owner. So the bylaws are written. The governing structure is is um, configured to ensure that the Green Bay Packers will always be the Green Bay Packers. And um, so when they came came time to, um, you know, they needed a new facility, they needed a new stadium, instead of putting that burden on the taxpayers to support some billionaire's, you know, dream of a, of a new stadium, they issued another uh, stock sale and raised the money to build Lambeau Field back in the 1950s, and um, and it's it's been a beautiful uh, you know get this you know I, I just learned this recently all the concessions in at Lambeau Field are operated by local nonprofits, so you can go buy a hot dog to support United Way, or you can go buy a Coke over here to support the local domestic you know shelter or or whatever. And um, that's um, you know that's really keeping reinvesting in the community, and um, and look how successful it's been. Yeah, it's not generated huge profits for some you know billionaire, 
uh, to buy a fabulous yacht or whatever, but it has allowed a community of 104,000 residents to compete and dominate franchises in L.A. and New York and Houston and Chicago and, and all over. Uh, and so um, that is a um, – and it's, there really is no – as far as I can tell, there's never real, really been any taxpayer uh, dollars or public um, uh, uh, investment. It's, it's a community investment. And it's a, all part of the private sector. Right, right, exactly. Now, can um, that same model be as – I guess I'm asking a rhetorical question – but can that same model, that Green Bay Packers model, be uh, successful for broadband? Absolutely, absolutely. It can be successful for broadband. We've seen it be successful for, for electricity and and uh, rural rural telephony. Uh, there is a uh, um, water system. That, there's actually no reason uh, rural uh, uh, buying cooperatives or you know, agriculture cooperatives. There's actually no reason that it can't work for broadband. And I, th I think one of the problems that we face in the United States as a cultural problem is that we are so marinated in this corporate culture that uh, we assume that you've got to be a Fortune 500 company to to deal with high tech. And um, but if you actually look at the history of telephony or electricity, um, um, you know it's it's been a, it's been a grassroots uh, bottom up uh, evolution. And I can tell you, I'm not an IT person. I'm an English major. I'm a journalist. Um, it, it's not rocket science. Uh, there are plenty of people. We, we're finding people in our high schools, kids that are you know great on our help desk it doesn't take a fortune 500 company and a phd in telecommunications engineering to to uh to build and operate a, a local uh, community network i cannot agree more we we do have this mindset issue and it seems like um that continues to get us in uh into some difficulty, you know, because we seem to expect that that's our only way out, and as a result, um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's definitely holding us back. Uh, you know, we do have a caller in here, and I think I would, if you if you don't mind living dangerously, I'm going to try to pick them up and see if we can get a conversation going. Is that okay with you, Wally? Absolutely. Uh, let's see what we got here. Good morning. Hi, Craig. How are you? Yes, sir. How I'm doing fine. How are you? And who are you? Tell our audience who you are. Good. Thanks. My name is Bart Eller, and I started a rural broadband wireless ISP here in Colorado in about uh, 2001, and uh, we built ours out to about seven tower sites. We covered 200 square miles. Um, and then in 2008, we sold to a bigger company, Skybeam, who's now Jab Inc., and they're going to be, or they are the biggest fixed wireless provider in the country. Um, and unfortunately, they kind of didn't really uh, do things the way they were going to, the way they described to us they were going to do it. And it seems like they'll probably emanate to a bigger company coming up. And this has all motivated me to kind of move towards. Uh, liking the co-op model that Wally's talking about. So I really mm -hmm. appreciate hearing Wally talk about it. Because uh, it sounds like what happened was what Wally talked about in terms of the that corporate mindset gets in. If you don't structure the arrangement appropriately, then what happens is um, you, you end up losing it. You end up losing the community asset because someone decides to take an early payday. Exactly. Wow. And yeah. so that's where I think the co-op model is, is really important, like he was saying with the Green Bay Packers or whatnot, that mm -hmm. uh, you know that that network is going to be the community's network forever, essentially. Right. So, well, definitely, well, thank you very much for calling in and sharing that piece of information. We really appreciate it. Thanks. And right, take care. Little, one, oh, go ahead. You there? Still there? One no, other we're little still here. piece. So recently I've started a project to try to – create a franchise for cooperatives and give those cooperatives uh, some support 
and create a, a bigger organization so that it's easier for communities who want to build those uh, types of cooperatives. And that's called the Simpler Project, and it's simplir.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll let you get back to the show, but just thought I'd throw that in there. Well, send send me some email on that. I think you have my email address or a way to contact me from the uh, Blog Talk Radio site. But send me some information on that because we should probably get more people aware of that because that's going to actually lead to my uh, next question. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to hang up. But definitely send me email on that because that really sounds very important. And again, thanks for calling okay. in. Yep. So so Wally. Uh, it sounds again like I'm, I don't want to make sure I, I want to make sure I paraphrase this correctly, but um, it sounds like the key to the nonprofit or cooperative being successful is that it needs to be structured in a way that ensures everything stays local. And it sounds like what what the Green Bay Packers did is by limiting the participation. Uh, it, in other words, everybody can participate, but but there's a ceiling on how much shares people can buy. That is how you prevent the kind of scenario that the gentleman that called in described. Is that a fair right? Answer? And okay. yeah, yeah. And Bart's um, uh, experience that he shared was really spot on because what he's describing is is um, a lack of accountability, and um, it, it's just. Um, Common sense, and we seem to have lost this common sense notion that, the, which goes back to the founding of the republic, is that the closer you are to the source of control and power, the more accountability there is. And so, um, uh, with uh, locally owned um, networks or locally owned businesses, um, you know you're you know you know where to find the network operators. You know their phone number, you know where they live, and you can hold them accountable. Uh, but the more we get into this, um, you know, moving to the corporate world with absentee ownership, we have been dealing with the irritation of and frustration of uh, absentee ownership and lack of accountability for generations now. In fact, it's become a cliche of how uh, unaccountable uh, these big corporate entities can be, you know, the uh, commercials um, about, I think it's a credit card, but, uh, you know, Peggy, who is the call center operator somewhere in the Ukraine or wherever, uh, it's a perfect illustration. It's the cliche of uh, lack oh, of accountability. Right. Everything being removed and outsourced and, you know, how right. much service can you get from someone who doesn't even understand culturally the kinds of issues you're even describing or the context that you're working in? Yeah, and and so, um, but going right back to the found, you know, the Tocqueville when the Tocqueville um, uh, toured America and 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 wrote about what he saw, uh, one of the things he commented on was this uh, self-help tradition, this uh, coming together to build a barn, to have a barn raising, um, this kind of cooperative. Uh, uh, you know, we're all in this together. You know, you're out there. Uh, doesn't matter, you know, like the old saying, if you know, if you're in a foxhole, there's no atheist in foxhole and there's <laughs> no enemy. I mean, you know, uh, we're all in this together, and right. um, you know, it doesn't matter whether we agree or disagree on this, that, or the other. We we gotta you know, gotta make this work, and that's uh, um, that's what you can do with a community-owned network. And you know, this is not just about broadband. You know, we're when in Asheville and I think all around the country, we're seeing this, um, you know, uh, bi-local uh, movement uh, just, you know, rocket. Uh, uh, and, and so um, everywhere we're, we're recognizing that, uh, um, you know, if we buy something from someone we know is local, if we have a problem with it, we're more likely to get some kind of satisfaction than if we're dealing with some um, a absentee owner somewhere. And um, it's just common sense we, that we seem to have um, forgotten. But I, I, think it's, uh, I, think it's come, I think we're coming back to our senses. Well, that, that would report. be a good thing. There are two questions I want to make sure we cover. We've got 10 minutes here or so. Uh, first one is, does an approach like BART's make sense? I mean, is it possible 
to to franchise the idea or the reality of co-ops. I think I think the bottom line. I, I don't know. I obviously don't know anything about his organization just because we just now found out about it. But the idea of trying to create a package of information or resources to help any community that wants to create a nonprofit or a cooperative, and then in essence franchise that whatever that package happens to be, could that work? I think it. I think it not only could it work. I think it's really necessary because uh, I've gotten a lot of inquiries over the years from different communities around the country, people who are, hey, how did you do this? And you know, could we do it here? And so uh, three years ago, I wrote the local network cookbook, um, which you can just Google it. It's it's uh, a little dated, but um, still, the the gist of it is is. Um, I, I think workable. Uh, just to kind of walk through, uh, you know, I was a community organizer uh, in the media literacy, media reform movement in the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, I was not a techie, but when I first was introduced to the internet uh, in around 1984, working as the director of the news office at the University of North Carolina Asheville, the light bulb went off for me, and I went, "Wow, this." This could lead to the structural reform of our media system that I've been dreaming of, and so um, so you know it you know I was able to kind of teach myself. I'm still not that good with technology, but I I you know I I know how to um, articulate a vision and to connect the dots, and I can describe to you how a packet switch network operates now and. Uh, in a way that uh, you know a, a, a layman can grasp, and it's uh, it's a it's a beautiful thing, and it's not it should be something we should be intimidated by. Um, and then, of course, we got all these IT folks in our community and resources that we can draw on. Um, so I, I guess that's the the beauty of what Bart was talking about is that having some kind of toolkit or best practices. Uh, some sort of basic information that help people just get started and to start to realize that, hey, you know, this isn't rocket science. This is something that, that uh, you know, smaller communities than ours have pulled off. Um, and I think that's uh, – but we also have to focus on the, what the policy is going down in Washington. As you know, Craig, this uh, Universal Service Fund reform is, um, uh, I think, a scandal in the making because here we are about to take $4.5 billion a year of our money, the money we pay on our phone bill every month for the universal service fee, and basically throw it back to the providers, to the incumbents, to bribe them to build out into rural areas when there are entities like us that have been doing it for all these years and we're not eligible for the Connect America Fund. And I that believe, is a huge scandal. Um, and I and I believe the folks at uh, WISPA, the Wireless Internet Service uh, Provider Association, feels very much the same way. It's that they, similar to to, to co-ops and nonprofit, have been building networks. They haven't been asking for government assistance, and they have proven the ability to put networks in some really remote places as well as populated places and do so affordably and provide affordable broadband that is of significant speed and yet the 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 reform is structured in such a way that they may not see a dime of that and 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 you're right it is our money i mean they don't they don't want to call it a tax but it is a tax i mean the 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 phone companies take it out directed by uh, you know the government and it goes into a fund that the government eventually distributes and so you know, but I, I think that's a that's a that's a topic I will definitely be coming back to time and again. You know, I do think the idea of uh, you know that brought, Bart has brought out there is excellent in terms of showing people how to do it. I wish there was a way that in, in doing something like that we could upset the you know the reform apple cart because four billion dollars is a lot of money and it's a lot of money to give to people who. In some respects, are the source of our of our of our broadband shortcomings. Now, let me ask my second question. We've got about five minutes. So, my other question has to do with with urban areas, because 
even though rural is what people talk about a lot when they say, you know, they're unserved, areas unserved by infrastructures, I would contend that in low-income urban areas, they too are underserved by the available infrastructure. And, gee, wouldn't it make sense if they could do some sort of uh, community, cooperative, or nonprofit in an urban setting? Um, given what you know the dynamics, uh, is is a, is a co-op a possibility or a nonprofit a possibility in an urban environment? Absolutely, and I'm really glad you brought this up, Craig, because it's even more possible in an urban area because one of the key things that you need for a community broadband network is that middle mile fiber. You've got to have the the high speed capacity to then deliver the last mile to a home or business. And it's that middle mile fiber fiber infrastructure that is the base of the pyramid. It's, it's the uh, absolutely essential ingredient that you've got this, the foundation that you have to have in order to be a, a true community broadband network. And the great thing about urban areas is that there's a lot of fiber uh, that's already on the poles in the ground and the buildings. There's conduit, Ethernet. There's a lot of assets already there. A lot of it's sitting idle. Uh, and, um, you know, the IT people at the university or at the big corporation or at the hospital or the library system, um, they, they know how to identify uh, where the dark fiber is or where the fiber is that you, you could lease for a nominal fee. And um, and so the opportunities for tapping into the middle mile fiber and then building out your nonprofit last mile community network in urban areas is is huge. And I'm really glad. And 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 that instead of it, it brings all those jobs into that low income neighborhood rather than send them up down uptown into the big you know uh, AT&T skyscraper. Uh, and again, that's where you start to get the social capital uh, multiplier effect of having that local expertise, you know, embedded in the neighborhood. To because uh, the next Steve Jobs or the next Bill Gates could, you know, is 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 there in that in that low income neighborhood. Couldn't agree more. Could not agree more. Definitely. So, um, what's a good parting? word uh we got about two minutes you know what should our listeners do that have now listened to this for an hour have gotten a better understanding of of the co-op nonprofit approach what should be like the one main thing maybe that people should focus on for the next two weeks just to crystallize in their own mind how to move this thing forward take heart from the green bay packers model take heart <laughs> heart from the um you know, I'm I've been a Packers fan off and on, but you know, I've, I'm I'm down here in the Carolinas and the Panthers and the Atlanta Falcons and and so forth. But uh, uh, but I am so um, enthralled by what that small community has been able to accomplish since 1923, and um, you know, it's not rocket science to operate your own NFL franchise and go up against. Uh, you know the big boys in Dallas and and elsewhere, and same same is true with community broadband. And um, um, you know that that nonprofit model allows you to reinvest in the community and start to build that infrastructure, build those assets, and build that social capital to where um, you know we have a a vibrant local economy, just like Green Bay, Wisconsin has a vibrant. Uh, local um, uh, professional football franchise. Um, yeah, that that is. Uh, if I had to single out one thing, Craig, you know, here we are in football season, so uh, it's it's apropos. Makes a lot of sense to me. Could be my next column. I write actually. Um, all right. I I want to thank you, Wally, for being our guest today and imparting some really good insights here to this whole uh, nonprofit and co-op discussion. And I wish you the best of luck in your in your stuff that you will be doing in the uh, future. Um, I want to thank our audience for listening today. And you know, we've been at this since August. And you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of good people out there with good ideas. And and hopefully, this show will help. 
you know, crystallize some of that in a lot of uh, in a lot of areas. So thank you for for checking in with us. Um, next week we'll start to map out the rest of the month, but I think co-ops will be a uh, a topic for other uh, shows as well. But definitely we're going to keep the ball rolling on community-driven uh, broadband solutions in whatever form they take in the in, in the long run. So again, thank you everyone, and to our media partners, Broadband Communities Magazine, GigaOM, uh, MuniWireless.com, and Community Broadband Networks. Everybody have a great day, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Craig. Thanks. Good show. All right. Take care. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.